Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk called God and the Problem of Evil. So let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, as we listen to a message entitled, A Glimpse of the Promised Land. If you ever get a chance to visit Israel, I hope that at some time you'd be able to stand at the top of Mount Nebu, which is in the nation of Jordan at the northern end of the Dead Sea. It's where the Jordan River flows into it. And from there, looking west in a place that's fairly barren, a lot of sands and rocks, you can stand on the mountain and look over to see beyond the Jordan River and see the Jordan Rift Valley. What's so amazing about that is that the contrast is so stunning from brown and barren. One looks over to the valley into Israel and one's greeted with eye-popping green. It's lovely. It's beautiful. Of course, if you ever stand on Mount Nebu, you'll be able to make note of the fact that Moses himself stood there 3,500 years ago. And you'll remember that God told Moses that, that he'd not be able to enter into the promised land, but he'd only be able to view it from a distance. You know, given the howling wasteland that he had traveled through, that, that sight must have filled his eyes with tears. For from Mount Nebu, he could have seen all that the promises of God were true. And there really is a land flowing with milk and honey. There really is a homeland that God had prepared for his people, and it was what Daniel would later call the beautiful land. The first time I ever saw Israel was exactly from that vantage point. My wife and I had taken a tour that began in Egypt, and then we followed the route of the Exodus, and then stood at the foot of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. It was hot there. The place has no vegetation, and the hotel where we stayed in was dusty. I was about to complain when Kathy reminded me what happened to the last group that complained there, and I took note. And when we arrived at Mount Nebu, Israel looked all the more inviting because of the barren wasteland that we had traveled through. And I, and I was overwhelmed with how that must have seemed to the people of Israel and to Moses in particular. In a sense, Habakkuk 3 pictures the prophet very much like Moses. He is standing before the promised land, and he's allowed to see it from a distance. Oh, I don't mean he sees Israel. No, he sees the new Jerusalem. He sees the day when Satan's wicked kingdom of Babylon falls and when God's kingdom vanquishes all evil. That's significant because in the immediate, all that we can see is the wasteland of the Babylonians coming to punish Jerusalem. But then in the distance, like Moses standing on Mount Nebu, he, he peers into the eternal promised land. Sounds like good news, doesn't it? And yet, as we're going to see, by the time he finishes his vision, he doesn't have a touching tear in his eye. Instead, his body trembles and he almost collapses in terror. Unlike Moses, Habakkuk's vision is not just a beautiful vision of a heavenly home. Habakkuk doesn't end with people just happy that evil is gone now and all is well. Habakkuk's vision is an unsettling and encouraging at the same time, a terrifying yet hopeful vision of God. In many ways, we should read Habakkuk chapter 3 like one of the Psalms because it's an invitation to worship. A number of the Psalms have a very similar portrayal of the majesty of God that we find here. But here in Habakkuk chapter 3, what we find is more than just a Psalm. What we will find is a logical conclusion to this remarkable little book. I want us to, if we can, step back and consider how chapter 3 actually works. Chapters 1 and 2 are about Habakkuk's complaint and about God's answer. God says, Habakkuk, why are you idly looking on while there's so much injustice in Jerusalem? And and then God answers. 
I'm hardly idly looking by. I am right now raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless people. They will come to Jerusalem and destroy the city because of her sins. And with that comes Habakkuk's second complaint. First, God, what will happen to the righteous? And God responds, the righteous shall live by faith. Ah, but is not Babylon more wicked than Judah? And the answer is, yes, they are. But what Babylon doesn't know is that she is storing up more wrath than she knows. Indeed, woe to Babylon. And with that, we might think that the book is over. But in the Bible, no discussion of what God is doing about evil should ever end there. See, we aren't invited into a university class to study evil, and then as answers are given, the class is dismissed, we receive our final grades, and then done. You see, no study of God is ever complete until the one who studies bends the knee and raises her or his hands and worships. God is not just the object of our study. He is the object of our veneration, of our worship. And so chapter 3 begins, and I'm reading verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. The word Shigianoth is just a straight-up transliteration from the Hebrew language. Truth be told, we actually don't know what that word means. But since the final line of that chapter ends with the words, to the choir master with stringed instruments, most scholars agree that the word shigianoth, which begins this chapter, must be some sort of a musical notation. You know, if you talk to musicians, and they're going to tell you about those little notations that, that direct the tempo of a piece and how loud or how quietly it's to be played. The notations are about the mood that's attached to the music. And so we know that this was a recording of Habakkuk standing before the promised land of God's glory. And what he saw, recorded in chapter 3, became a part of the worship music of Israel. But this worship song is a prayer, a deep yearning of the heart. It's a yearning for the promised land. It's a, a yearning for the end of evil. It's a yearning for God's righteousness to finally and utterly reign. It's, it's a yearning for the day to come when God will finally and utterly triumph. So let's read verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So verse 2 is the only petition or the only prayer request in this chapter. Everything else is adoration and a display of the greatness of God. But it's precisely because God is so great that Habakkuk begins with a prayer. And what is it that he prays? Well, three things. First, he prays that God would display his glory. Notice the words, in the midst of years, revive it. The years that Habakkuk is talking about is the time period between God's announcement of judgment against Judah and the actual event itself. That is, from the time that God told Habakkuk that he was raising up the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem to the time when they actually did it. In the midst of these intervening years, he says, revive it. So revive what? Well, look again at the beginning of the verse. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So as a faithful Jew, Habakkuk's religion is not about the internal subjective experiences that he has. His faith in God is based upon what God has done in history. See, the works of God include creation, the choosing of Abraham, the plagues against Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, the, the voice of God thundering from Sinai. God making the sun stand still, the walls of Jericho falling down. I mean, we could go on and on. 
What Habakkuk wants before the judgment of God falls on Judah is that God would work the way that he has in the past, in these intervening years now. Since the just live by faith, Habakkuk pleads that that God will reveal his glory the way that he's done in years past. For he knows that if God remains silent in the midst of these years, then men and women will go quietly forward, carrying on in their lives as they always have, until the judgment of God falls upon them, and then they are eternally lost. And this first prayer of Habakkuk really does set a pattern for our prayers as well. See, we, like Habakkuk, are also living in the midst of years. The time is drawing ever closer for Christ's second coming, and with that will come the final battle of the ages as the nations gather in the valley of Jehoshaphat or in the valley of Armageddon before the Lord of glory appears on a war horse and all the nations of the earth will mourn at his coming. You know, we are like Habakkuk in the midst of years, awaiting the day when the cities of man are burned to the ground and the greatest of all woes is felt by the human race. I find it alarming that in times past, we, we, you know, we've set up prophecy conferences when we've tried to figure out how far we are along in the prophetic calendar rather than doing what Habakkuk teaches us to do. In the intervening years, O God, revive your great works. I think what we need to be praying about before the Lord comes is for a great harvest among those who are lost. Instead of complaining too much to the Lord that he has delayed his coming, I think we should begin to pray for worldwide missions. Uh, We should learn what's happening in various nations of the world and pray specifically about that. We should pray for the gospel to advance in countries that have had so little gospel influence in the past. And by the way, while we're about that, let's also pray for our own country, that God would condescend to send yet one more great outpouring of a revival and allow for many to come to a season of grace. In the midst of years, or in these intervening years between your first coming and the second, O Lord, show yourself again. Do great works as you have done in the past. Revive that work in our day, O Lord, we pray. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We've been looking at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. So that was the first prayer. Now, now the second. In the midst of the years, make it known. 
Now, in many ways, this second request sounds almost exactly the same as the first one, but would you notice that Habakkuk moves from praying that God would revive his great works to praying that God would make known his great work in the past or that people would be caused to notice what God has done. So you might remember that an earlier complaint in Habakkuk was that even though God has raised up the Babylonians, the Babylonians themselves are unaware that God has done it. And they simply assume that they themselves were responsible for their own power. Habakkuk is praying instead for a day when the nations are aware of God. See, that's not at all unlike what so many people assume today. They assume that whether it be victories in warfare or technological and medical breakthroughs, that all these things are their own doings rather than the accomplishment of the grace of God to undeserving people. Habakkuk is longing for the day that God has already told him about, that one day the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. But in the midst of years, that is, before the time of the end, would God be so good to make human beings know what it is that he has done? And now the final prayer, which in effect sums up the other two prayers. In wrath, remember mercy. Wrath is coming. Judgment day will eventually descend, and when it does, God will vindicate himself against his enemies. The report that Habakkuk has heard about the great deeds of God, is, as we're going to see, goes back to the Exodus, where, where God poured out his wrath on Egypt. Now, wrath would have come upon Israel as well on those days, but God had back in the day sealed Israel with the blood of a sacrificial lamb so that wrath passed over them. And that's what Habakkuk is remembering. That's why Habakkuk prays, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk knows that to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, has such wide-reaching ramifications. God doesn't just deliver us from evil. He defeats evil. And this means the outpouring of God's judgment on all that is evil. It means the end times. It, it means the coming of the day of the Lord. Amos the prophet speaking to wicked people would say, and, I, and I'm reading from Amos 5 verses 18 and 19, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. In other words, the end times, the, the day when the kingdom finally comes, is a day of death. From the New Testament, we know that the day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus when Christ returns seated upon a war horse and the earth is filled with blood. Yes, evil will not bow its head gracefully. It will be defeated in a horrible battle on the day of the Lord, on the day of the return of Christ. Before we enter the promised land, a great horror will yet come. And because Habakkuk knows this, he prays for three things, that God will again act in glorious ways as he has in the past, that God will let human beings know that he is there, and that God will remember mercy. For if God treated us in the way that we deserve, no one would stand when Christ returns. The only thing that preserved Israel on that day when God destroyed Egypt was the blood of the covenant. As the angel of death or the angel of wrath descended upon Egypt, Israel too would have died were it not for the blood of the lamb that was smeared onto the doorposts. And that word is also for us today. If today you're praying for judgment of evil, know that there is enough evil in you to make you the object of that judgment. Don't be so hasty to ask for God's justice. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. Our only hope is the blood of the covenant in which wrath fell on Christ and on his cross. 
Unless his blood is applied to our lives and he takes our wrath on himself, we are lost. So whenever we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take me home, remember to say, and Lord, remember mercy. Now, the rest of Habakkuk chapter 3 really is God's response to Habakkuk's prayer. Today, we're simply going to look at the beginning of God's response, that is, verses 3 and 4. I'm reading them to you now. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. In case you're wondering what we read in Habakkuk 3, let me help. Habakkuk 3 is a theophany. It's an image of God, a revelation of his being. Now, if you read carefully, you're going to notice that the passage doesn't describe what God actually looks like. The only actual description of God that we have in this entire passage is the mention of his hand and that rays flashed from his hand. See, that's not to suggest that God has physical hands. Remember that Jesus in John 4:24 taught us that God is spirit, which means that he doesn't have a physical form. That's why, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And might I add here that we are also forbidden from making for ourselves a mental form, conceiving of God in terms of any human image in in our minds, for that too is idolatry. If we conceive of God as a white-haired man sitting on a throne, you're not actually thinking about God at all. Rather, you've conceived a hateful thing. It's an idol. It's an abomination. You need to reject that. Now, when I say these things, I know people will say, but wasn't Jesus a man? Well, yes, he became man. Indeed, that's the miracle of the incarnation. He who eternally has no form took upon himself the form of a man. But the Father is not a man. For our sakes, the Messiah tabernacled among us, veiled his splendor behind the veil of human flesh. I think I am getting too far afield here, but I want to say that inherent to the nature of God is that he is spirit. And because of that, when God reveals himself in the book of Habakkuk, we are told that his splendor covers the heavens and that his brightness was like light, but we're not told of what he looks like. We're only told of manifestations that are around him. And that's also true in Revelation, where in in chapter 4, John is taken up into the throne room of God. And then we read of the throne and that God's appearance is like jasper and carnelian and emerald. And we're told of a sea of glass that surrounds the throne and of 24 elders and four living creatures, but there remains no physical description of the one who is on the throne. How does one describe the one who is indescribable or tell of him who is spirit? Now, there are a few occasions in the Old Testament in which we have what many Bible teachers call a theophany, which is a depiction of Christ in human form before he actually clothes himself in humanity. It's a foretaste of what's to come. There we find an anticipation of God becoming a man, but not here, not here in Habakkuk, where all we are told of is splendor and brightness and rays of light. There are depictions of holiness, of purity, of power, and of glory. 
in Habakkuk, God is depicted as the judge of the earth. The nations will see his glory when it's revealed, and and they will writhe, all knees will buckle at his greatness, and men and women will mourn. Don't you think that it's time to get rid of our idolatrous notions of God? Don't you think that it's time to throw our idols away? The reason why Habakkuk, when he thought of God coming to bring judgment upon the wicked, begins with a prayer that God would remember mercy, well, that's because the prophet understood just how great God was. He didn't have the idea of, you know, our inclusive God who who makes sure that we're all feeling good about ourselves. Instead, both God and we are interested in his glory. And so to look upon God can only be described as standing at ground zero in a nuclear blast. The light is brilliant, but the light also destroys everyone who looks. In wrath, praise Habakkuk, remember mercy. For Habakkuk, the mercy of God and the love of God is not the place where he begins. He begins with the glory of God, the greatness of God, the overwhelming nature of his presence. And then when he finds mercy and love, it's overwhelming beyond belief. He is overwhelmed that there should be love at all. We should be as well. Only one who understands God knows how to pray. In wrath, remember mercy. Indeed, let us pray that way as well. For Heavenly Father, we would see a glory of God in our day. We want, O Lord God, that you would display your might. And yet, we plead with you, God, that you would remember mercy and show your great love to the children of men. In Jesus' name, amen. John, you know, we often speak of God's power, his love, his mercy, but here the emphasis is upon his glory. In fact, you said that that that's the place we need to start. Yeah, I do think we do need to start there because when we start with love, for instance, we actually construct love in the way that we understand it and think that it should be applied. And that's why a lot of people will end up saying, well, I I thought God loved me and now he's not treating me in a way that I think that love should indicate. And because we haven't understood the nature of God, we don't understand the nature of his love. So I do think that glory is the place to start. We need to define the greatness of our God, who he is, and why his greatness is everything. And then when we find love, we find that this surprising, wonderful grace. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to hearing more from the book of Habakkuk in the days to come. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The world we live in is a fallen one. Bad things are happening all around us, but why? How could a God who loves us allow evil to exist in the world? These are the questions that Dr. John Newfeld answers in his series, God and the Problem of Evil. It's become popular for people to say that they're angry at God, but have we stopped to think about how God feels about us? What happens when you shake your fist at God when life gets hard? When we are in seasons of despair, what should our response to our Creator be? God will always act in a way that's consistent with His character, not with culture. Join us every day for more Bible teaching you can trust from Back to the Bible Canada. And if you'd like to support the ministry or receive more information about all the free resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
or visit backtothebible.ca.